Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings to those seeking to know the truth and to those who think they already know it. Back on November 24th, 2013, the Denver Broncos were up 24 to nothing at halftime over the New England Patriots, only to lose 34-31 in overtime. Having grown up in Southern California and being a longtime Rams and Raiders fan from back then, we're way too familiar with losing a game in the final seconds to the Patriots. This game also illustrated a principle, which is don't give up just because you're behind. The Broncos took a huge early lead, and the Patriots came roaring back, controlled the second half of the game, forced it into overtime, and ultimately won. This reminds me a little bit of what happened to me personally in my transition from an atheist evolutionist to a Christian creationist. There were times when I began to look at specific types of scientific evidence for evolution or the Big Bang, and initially it looked completely overwhelming from a creationist biblical history perspective. It simply looked like the evidence pointed out that the six-day creation a few thousand years ago simply couldn't be true. However, after putting in some effort and digging more deeply into the actual data and continuing to study the subject and not giving up, the data that looks so overwhelmingly in favor of an anti-creation perspective turned out to not be interpreted well. It turned out there was other data, of which I was not aware, that was in fact completely consistent with the biblical history. And just like Brady is very confident even though behind in a game, because he's come from behind so many times that he has confidence that it can happen again. That's now how I feel when encountering new scientific evidence that looks like a serious problem for a biblical creation model. Over the past 35 years, I've seen numerous instances where that was the case. It looked like things were going to be tough, but upon further investigation and upon further illumination into the actual scientific data, the problem disappeared. And so that gives me personally the confidence to just sort of bide my time a bit when something new hits the horizon and continue to look into it. Partly it relates to understanding that within science, there's an awful lot we don't know. Speaking of which, Creation Evolution Headlines at crev.info is a really interesting source for headlines updated on a regular basis that relate to the creation-evolution controversy. And last week they had an interesting blog titled, Surprising Things Science Didn't Know. And one of those really jumped out at me. It reads, Discovery in the Knee. One would think, after centuries of dissections and surgeries, that the human knee is pretty well understood. Not so. A new ligament has been discovered, reported in the BBC News, named the anterocollateral ligament, ALL, It looks pretty obvious from the photo at Medical Express. It's important, too. It helps protect the knee when we twist or change direction. Without it, the knee can suddenly give way. A surgeon outside the study group remarked, If you look back through history, there's been a veiled understanding that something is going on on that side of the knee, but this work finally gives us a better understanding. And NFL fans are quite familiar with the phrase torn ACL, for example. 
and my personal experience with learning about wonderful things like cartilage and knee ligaments began when I was 15 and first tore up my knee. I was one of those unfortunate wannabe athletes who has the attitude for being an athlete, but not the physique, and I continually destroyed my knees. I finally quit after six knee surgeries, and I limp around now knowing both my knees will have to be replaced. So I followed the links from Creve Info and took a look at some of the more detailed information about this newly discovered knee ligament and read the following over at BBC News. The notion of this particular ligament was first made by French surgeon Paul Sagan in 1879, but it has evaded definitive surgical classification for many years. Well, yeah, over a hundred of them. One consultant knee surgeon commented, I think this is very exciting. There is no doubt they have hit upon a very important anatomical structure. The researchers took a close look with dissection techniques at 41 donated knee joints and pinpointed this ligament in all but one of them. And they say the presence of this band could help them better understand and treat a common sports injury that has puzzled doctors for some time, the anterior cruciate ligament tear, that dreaded ACL tear. An injury to the ACL is typical in people who pivot during sport, from athletes and basketball players and footballers and skiers. A tear can happen when you change direction rapidly or stop suddenly and causes pain, swelling, and reduced movement in the knee. Well, it certainly does. It hurts like the dickens when you tear a ligament. And they go on to describe how some people post-ACL repair, which I have, still have problems. 10 to 20% of them, even though they have a repaired ACL, don't fully recover. And it describes patients saying, when they make a twisting motion, their knee gives way. Well, I know exactly what they're talking about. So my guess would be that it's likely I actually have an injury to this ALL ligament, which nobody knew to even look for. The article says the surgeons hypothesize some people may injure the ALL at the same time as the ACL, leaving the knee less stable as the leg rotates. One knee surgeon who was not involved in the research said, quote, I do around 150 ACL repairs each year. When I saw Dr. Clace's research, it blew me away. Knowing about the ALL has given us a better understanding of what other structures may be damaged during this common injury, and this will hopefully open up opportunities to improve surgery for our patients. Now, I don't know what the number is, but it's certainly many, many thousands of knee surgeries are performed every year, probably a 100,000 plus in the U.S. I mean, it may be much higher than that. Just on professional athletes, you hear about it all the time. And in those cases, you often have careers and millions of dollars at stake, and you have the best and brightest surgeons in the world who have extensively worked on knee injuries, and yet none of them knew about this ligament. Isn't that interesting? They didn't see it because they didn't expect it to be there. It wasn't part of their anatomy training. So even though it was referred to in 1879 by a surgeon, it was still completely ignored and thus invisible to everybody else working on knees. To me, it's another example of that wonderful phrase, if I hadn't believed it, I wouldn't have seen it. Often what we believe or what we expect to see completely shapes what we do see. And it's only in retrospect that we can realize we were completely missing things that should have been obvious to us. 
And this fact of human thinking has a huge part to play in the creation-evolution issue. Some evolutionists are so committed to that belief system that the problems that it has, which are enormous scientifically, are truly invisible to them. They really don't see them. And they won't see them until they begin to allow some skeptical thinking to occur. So as always, I highly recommend to everyone, be a critical thinker. In order to be a critical thinker about evolution, the very first thing that has to be done is to define the term so we know what in the world we're actually talking about. And I've mentioned many times on this show, that is one of the biggest single issues. The word evolution gets used in multiple ways and creates a great deal of confusion. This isn't something new. The Oxford-published book, Implications of Evolution, back in 1960, included the following. There is a theory which states that many living animals can be observed over the course of time to undergo changes so that new species are formed. This can be called the special theory of evolution and can be demonstrated in certain cases by experiments. On the other hand, there is the theory that all the living forms in the world have arisen from a single source which itself came from an inorganic form. This theory can be called the general theory of evolution and the evidence that supports it is not sufficiently strong to allow us to consider it as anything more than a working hypothesis. It is not clear whether the changes that bring about speciation are of the same nature as those that brought about the development of new phyla, that is, the types of changes within a kind of creature versus the types of changes needed to create new kinds of creatures. Back to the quote, the answer will be found in future experimental work and not by the dogmatic assertions that the general theory of evolution must be correct because there is nothing else that will satisfactorily take its place. This statement from 53 years ago is just as pertinent today as it was when it was first published. Other than listening to a show like this one by a creationist, how many of you have ever heard an evolutionist make the distinction between the special theory of evolution and the general theory of evolution? They almost never discuss the difference. By the way, they're often today called microevolution. That would be the special theory of evolution, the changes within a species, or even the changes that can cause the creation of a new species. Educated creationists also believe in this and have written many scientific articles on this subject. And we all agree that this special theory of evolution, or microevolution, is in fact supported by laboratory evidence. However, as the book Implications of Evolution noted, the evidence for the general theory of evolution, or macroevolution, is not sufficiently strong to allow us to consider it as anything more than a working hypothesis. In other words, they didn't think it even deserved the title theory. And then there are two very important and critical concepts stated. It's not clear whether the changes that bring about speciation are of the same nature as those that brought about the development of new phyla. In today's language, we would say it's not clear that the changes that bring about microevolution are the same as those required to cause macroevolution. 
In fact, what we've learned in information science and in molecular biology in the past 53 years make it abundantly clear they are completely different. The general theory of evolution or macroevolution requires the creation of vast new amounts of highly specific information within the genome. Microevolution or speciation or the special theory of evolution as they called it does not require that kind of information at all. You can actually break a gene and split one species into two species. The distinction between microevolution and macroevolution is incredibly important. Anyone who actually looks at that closely and understands the difference has a very difficult time remaining an evolutionist. Not only is there no evidence in favor of macroevolution, but what we know in science says it could not occur. There's a very good reason why Kirkut, in writing Implications of Evolution, followed that question about speciation being different than creating new phyla, or microevolution being different than macroevolution, with this statement. The answer will be found in future experimental work and not by the dogmatic assertions that the general theory of evolution must be correct because there's nothing else that will satisfactorily take its place. That essentially is the logic used to support macroevolution when it is challenged. And it is largely this specific type of evidence or need for evidence that the intelligent design theorists point out is best explained by an intelligent cause. And evolutionists cannot provide a scientific answer to that question, so they say things like the following by Dr. Scott Todd, an immunologist at Kansas State University. He said, even if all the data point to an intelligent designer, such an hypothesis is excluded from science because it is not naturalistic. And we've talked before about this attempt to redefine science as equal to naturalism. And the fact that that is an attempted redefinition that is not agreed to by all scientists and specifically was not believed by the founders of virtually every area of modern science. But if you follow that train of thought and try to stick with a naturalistic understanding of everything, then you're forced to conclude what the implications of evolution warned against. You're forced to conclude that the general theory of evolution must be correct because there's nothing else that can take its place. Nothing else, that is, that's purely naturalistic. So even though it doesn't work, and it's contradictory to the laws of physics and chemistry and biology, and there's no physical evidence for it, it must be true. And this type of thinking is also not true. Special creation means, essentially, creation by God, a supernatural creation, all the way back in 1929, published in Nature, in an article adaptation, Professor D.M.S. Watson wrote, Evolution is a theory universally accepted, not because it can be proven by logically coherent evidence to be true, but because the only alternative, special creation, is clearly incredible. This is precisely the type of reasoning that Kirkut, in Implications of Evolution in 1960, wrote, is not the way to answer this problem. That's simply a dogmatic assertion. It must be true because we don't have an alternative. That isn't how science is supposed to work. 
And in case you're saying to yourself, well, those are old quotes, so we've got it figured out now. You're just dredging up old stuff that's already been rendered obsolete by our advances in scientific knowledge. Wrong again. Go back and review our show from October 31st, or go to the website of Professor James Tour of Rice University, one of the top 10 most cited chemists in the entire world, who says, I don't understand how evolution works, and yet if anybody should, I should, because I understand the chemistry and I make synthetic molecules. He has a challenge to anyone who can explain it to him. They get a free lunch. It's been a challenge out there for probably a decade now, and nobody is taking him up on it. The truth is, the more we've learned about what's going on at the molecular level, the harder it is to understand how evolution could actually happen. Professor Tour summed it up perfectly in this way. So it boils down to this. Evolution is understood by those who do not understand the necessary chemistry. But those who do understand the chemistry do not understand evolution. Bingo. Every claim I've ever seen about how this supposedly worked at the macroevolution level violates the laws of chemistry and information science. But if you just want to have something said which can prop up your belief in evolution and your decision to avoid the possibility that the Bible might be true, that's a position many people are in and a position I was in when I was an atheist, then you might take these assertions and feel comforted by them and you really don't want to dig in too deep to decide if there's really any science behind these assertions. But if you're listening to these words, I assume you're interested in at least critically thinking about these things and I highly encourage you to do so. We mentioned a few minutes ago the distinction between microevolution, or the special theory of evolution, and macroevolution, or the general theory of evolution, and the fact that there is repeatable scientific evidence, laboratory experimentally based evidence, for microevolution, but that's not the case for macroevolution. There's a very similar issue regarding the origin of our universe itself. Back in Science a few years ago, an article was published a single conundrum, how odd is our universe, and it included the following. Cosmology may look like a science, but it isn't a science, says James Gunn of Princeton University, co-founder of the Sloan Survey. A basic tenet of science is that you can do repeatable experiments, and you can't do that in cosmology. So as you're reading the frequent statements in cosmology about things like, well, we're observing a star-forming region, keep in mind there's no experimental evidence for this. And there are interesting observations which are rather problematic. Over at AnswersInGenesis.org, there's an article that was published three years ago by astronomy professor Danny Faulkner titled, Blue Stars, Unexpected Brilliance. The intro says, Among the kaleidoscope of stars, brilliant blue stars are of special interest. They shine so brightly that they should burn up their fuel in just a few million years, but they're still everywhere, as if recently created. The article points out that if the universe is the assumed 13.7 billion years old, and these stars burn through their fuel quickly, then they must be being formed spontaneously throughout most of history, including recent times. 
But Professor Faulkner points out that despite their diligent search, they've never observed one of these blue stars forming, or any other star for that matter. Nevertheless, they must believe that stars form continually because the theory demands it. Proposed solution? Condensing gas clouds. Where and how do stars form, then, according to evolutionary theories? Astronomers have found huge amounts of gas within the arms of spiral galaxies. This gas has the same main ingredient as stars, hydrogen. The gas and dust clouds are very clumpy, with a wide range in density. Given the similar chemical composition of gas clouds and stars, astronomers assume that the more dense clumps of gas contract under their own gravity to form new stars. How likely is this? After all, gas particles don't naturally collapse into small burning balls. Think about how different these two things are. Gas clouds are millions of times larger than stars, and they have much lower temperatures and densities. The densest clouds in space may contain a few thousand particles per cubic inch. By contrast, even the air we breathe contains a quadrillion times more particles than interstellar gas clouds. The sun's average density is a million quadrillion times denser than gas clouds. Obviously, the contraction of a gas cloud to form a star would require a tremendous decrease in size and volume. Gas in these clouds is very cold, typically minus 250 degrees Fahrenheit, while stars are very hot, up to 70,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface of some blue stars, with interior temperatures reaching tens of millions of degrees. These vast differences must disappear before a cloud could condense to form a star. The process may sound simple, but it is fraught with problems. The largest problem is that a gas cloud is so spread out that its gravity is minuscule. As thin as the gas is, it does have some pressure, and the pressure pushing particles apart tends to exceed the gravity that pulls them together. If the cloud were to shrink, the pressure would increase to cause the cloud to expand. If a cloud were small enough, gravity could take over and cause the cloud to contract. How small must the cloud be to collapse under its own gravity? The astronomer Sir James Johns asked and answered this question in 1902. He found that the cloud must be somewhat larger than a star, but many orders of magnitude smaller than any observed cloud for this to happen. That is, no observed gas cloud is even close to the Jean's length. Astronomers have long understood this fundamental problem, so they suggest that some outside mechanism may compress a gas cloud down to the Jean's length so that gravity can finish the process. Astronomers have suggested a number of mechanisms, such as the shock wave from a nearby supernova explosion. The problem is that all of these mechanisms require pre-existing stars that can explode and generate new stars. While this mechanism might possibly work in the universe today, it likely cannot produce new stars at the rate required by modern evolutionary theories, nor can it explain the origin of the first stars. To solve this problem, astronomers suggest that the first stars formed in a burst of activity in the early universe triggered by some unknown mechanism. Faulkner then describes several problems even with this assumption of an unknown mechanism, and then says, Rather than appealing to unknown natural forces at work in the past, creation astronomers depend on the book written by the infallible creator who was there and made the stars. As we would expect, modern observations about the star-filled universe confirm the Lord's creativity, and blue stars in particular are consistent with the Bible's account of a young universe. This problem of the formation of the first stars is well known among the scientists, but rarely discussed with students.
We noted in an earlier broadcast that the origin of stars and galaxies remained an unsolved problem per Stephen Hawking. So think about it for just a second. The standard accepted cosmology cannot explain the origin of the first stars. Well, if you don't get the first stars and you need them in order to produce everything else, then you have explained the existence of precisely nothing. If you stick to the known laws of science, the Big Bang cosmology would produce no stars, galaxies, or planets at all. Which simply points out that the known laws of science are insufficient to explain the universe around us. The evolutionist worldview requires belief in unknown mechanisms that contradict the known scientific laws. The biblical worldview is sufficient to explain what's around us, but it requires belief in the God of the Bible who revealed himself to us both through Scripture and especially through Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So if you want to know God, look closely at Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. See creationmythormiracle.com. <laughs>